Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, we'd love you to like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero story. And in this episode, I met with Simon Rin, a father of two, husband and a mental health advocate and founder of Mindful Men, which is a therapy practice dedicated to supporting men with mental illness and disability. Where did it start? Well, that's what this story is all about. When he was a child, he developed OCD, but the thing is no one actually noticed and he was able to continue without people noticing and he didn't realize what he had. He suffered from alcohol addiction, depression, and of course the OCD. And it wasn't until he was 28, he finally got some help for that and was able to identify his OCD. He also went through a burnout and a breakdown. All of this has helped him to identify who he really is, helped him to create this beautiful pathway for men to get help. It's a wonderful story. He speaks about it so clearly and lovingly. And I know for those who have experienced anything like this, you'll relate and Simon's a a true warrior. And I was very grateful to him for sharing everything that he did. So enjoy this story with Simon Wren. Hello, here we are. It is another episode and I'm here with Simon Wren. How are you doing today, Simon? I'm really good. How are you going today? I am really well. I'm I'm very well. I'm excited. Excited about this conversation. This is about you. And before we get started, I just want to thank you for coming on Kintsugi Heroes. And I just want to honor you for being open and vulnerable, brave, you know, being willing to share your story. I know it's not easy and it's uh it's a it's a gift that you're giving to the world by sharing a story that can help others. So I just want to thank you for that. No, I'm looking forward to it. I really get a lot of therapeutic benefit from telling my story and I've told it many times, but the more I can tell it, the more I can inspire other blokes to tell their stories too. So yeah, really happy to be here and share that story. Wonderful. Well, let's get started, shall we? I would love for you to take us back uh, to where your story begins. I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Well, where I am right now, so about to turn 40 in a few months, so I'm starting to feel old, <laughs> I'm losing my hair at a rate of knots. I've, I'm, a, I'm a husband and a dad. I've got two little kids, um, one's six, one's three. Uh, we live up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, but we're not from the sunny coast. Um, I was born in Adelaide, and I'm glad like you've, you, you've asked me to go right back to the start because I think as a, as a social worker that I am, context is really important to understanding who we are, how we develop over time, and then who we become in our, in our later years. And so, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with that environment, it's very working class. There's lots of pockets of welfare and lower socioeconomic, um, you know, people living in those kind of conditions, social housing, um, like mum was a cleaner, dad worked at the council. So we weren't, you know, hugely wealthy family. We were like we're just an average or lower middle class family. I guess you could call it that. Um, I grew up with three brothers and this was in a time before, you know, the internet and social media and all this type of stuff. And so my understanding of the world around me was influenced by this environment that I grew up in and, and, the boys around me, the, the testosterone-driven household that I was in. And, and you know, we played Australian rules football and we did athletics, basketball, soccer, all the sports you can think of. And the more physical, the better in our family because we loved, you know, wrestling around and, and, and smacking into each other and seeing how we can, what we could get away with essentially. And, and 
but it's probably around eight years old that my story really starts and I develop what's called obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and for anyone who's not sure what that is, it's obsessive compulsive disorder is an anxiety condition. Um, it starts with an obsessive thought, which can be quite intrusive, can be quite distressing. And the only way to alleviate that thought is to perform a compulsive act or a compulsion. So that's the C in OCD. Um, or a behavior, if that, if that makes sense as well. And then it becomes a disorder because you're doing this for over an hour a day and it's quite a traumatic, you know, process. It's quite an exhausting process. It's not something that you kind of do in five minutes and you're done with it. Um, so to give that con- some context, when I was in the schoolyard, uh, another a friend of mine, or not a friend of mine, a student said to me, Simon, if you stop using your voice for more than an, a minute, you're going to lose your voice forever. And so this created an obsessive thought, an intrusive thought in my mind that I thought was gospel. I, I thought that was going to happen. And now most people would just go, yeah, that's just BS. That's not going to happen. But for me, I actually did think it was going to happen. And so in order to alleviate the distress that came with this thought that I could not get out of my brain, I had to perform a compulsive act. And that was for me humming to myself. So every minute I would do like a small, minute hum, like a mm, mm, to check that my voice is still there and that my voice box was still working. Because as an eight-year-old, you know, growing up in Adelaide, growing up with that in that boys' household playing sport, my voice was, you know, a critical part of growing up for me. It was how I expressed myself. It was how I, you know, fought back against my brothers. It's how I played sport and you know had people pass the ball to me and 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 so forth and. And the thought of losing my voice, it just petrified me. And so I did that for about two years, this humming thing to myself, all day, every day. But nobody ever ever said to me, Simon, stop humming, stop making those noises. So I think I did a pretty good job of masking it. Um, I did it to myself all day, every day. I'm not sure really what I did at night time because I you know, obviously went to sleep. And I wish I kind of had the brain power to go, oh, yeah, you don't do this at night time. So that's not actually... A, a reality, <laughs> but I didn't. I, I was like, no, nah, this is, this is, this is going to happen. And so I did this for about two years. And then over, over the years, it grew into something that's morphed into what I still live with today as an almost 40 year old. Um, and for me though, it was undiagnosed until I was 28. And so from eight, it started, you know, I did that humming thing for two years, did a lot of other things like counting and checking and, and, and so forth. Um, but yeah, 28 was when I finally got, I guess, the inspiration to go and get help and take off this, this mask of what I call mental illness and actually ask for help and kind of put to bed as well, not just the mental illness component of me, but also this masculinity thing that developed from those early years of growing up in that environment, playing those sports, testosterone driven household. That reinforced the notion that boys can't cry, boys can't show emotion, boys can't talk about their feelings because that's what we were told back, you know, in the eighties and nineties, whether it was our dads, whether it was our brothers, whether it was our friends at school. I remember being at school around 10 years old and I, and I saw my, my best mate crying in the schoolyard. And I, I feel, I feel shameful saying this, but I went up to him and I went into that automatic mode and I said, mate, you've got to stop crying. Boys don't cry. You're not allowed to see, people aren't allowed to see you cry. These boys don't do this. And I'm so thankful for my mate because he said, Simon, I can cry if I want to. And what this did was planted a seed that took a long time to grow internally for me that recognized that all the stuff that I had learned through my environment of what masculinity is maybe wasn't necessarily the truth and, and reality of what life is like for a guy. Unfortunately, it's, it's what many guys go through. You know, um, many guys grew up in a similar environment where they were told not to show emotions. They were told to suck it up, carry on, or they were influenced by media like the movies that I was talking about before, you know, Terminator, Die Hard, all that type of stuff. They were influenced by music, influenced by what the news would say, even the commentators on the football you know, on the, on the football that I watched or watching WCW wrestling or WWF wrestling and all this type of stuff, you know, this is what we consumed in the 80s and 90s. And so we, we bought into it. Um, and unless you're in an environment that openly where males were openly talking about their emotions and feelings, it's not something that you did naturally. And so you bottled it up. 
and I bottled it up for 20 years. And then eventually I used alcohol, for example, to keep bottling it up and suppress it down even further or to deal with it when it did bubble up to the surface in terms of anger or disagreements or anxiety or nervousness or stress or depression as well. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that, uh, you know, eventually I did get the help because then since then I've been on it's like 11 years ago now on a bit of a journey of self-discovery on therapies and medications and different types of ways of healing. And now I'm at a point where I can, I just have taken off that mental illness mask and I live with it on my sleeve. My heart is on my sleeve and, and I'm really passionate about telling this story because I hope that other guys can see me talking about it or hear me talking about it and go, you know, if Simon can do it, I can do it as well. Um, so yeah, that's where it, it all started and, and kind of a brief overview of how I, of, you know, getting help as well. But there's a lot of, you know, turbulent waves along that journey as well that I'm happy to share as well. Thanks, Simon. Um, take me through back to, so you were eight and you did this for a couple of years and then how did that translate to bottling emotions? Can you just, because it sounds like there's a number of things that you went through and, and I guess I don't like the word suffer from, but it, it's being, you were challenged by. Can you take me through that connection and then how it actually played out in life for you as a child, teenager and a young adult? So I guess like the, the bottling it up component of it is first me learning that it wasn't okay for a boy to talk about things. And so when it started happening, I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know this was a mental illness because mental illness discussions weren't something or mental health wasn't discussions that you had in the 80s and 90s. Definitely not in my, in my circles, not at my school or anything like that. And so I didn't know what was going on inside. So the first few years was just me trying to slap a band aid on it by humming and checking my voice was still there. But then also thinking that I was, I was weird or was doing something that was, if I talked about it, I'd be laughed at and ridiculed. And so that was the bottling up thing. It was, it was around trying to appear normal to everybody else and not let my guard down. And I did this so often that it felt like everyone could see me doing this, but in reality, I don't think anybody saw me doing this. And so when I got through that two-year period and eventually just kind of stopped doing the humming thing, but then when I, I was about 12, 13, 14, mum and dad separated, and me and my little brother went with mum and to live with mum in the same neck of the woods, Um but, yeah, we had to go out and rent a house and mum had to buy all the secondhand furniture. And I remember coming home and having a, all of our stuff in gar black garbage bags that we just crammed into the car and that was it. We didn't know what was going on or anything like that. Um, and then all of a sudden I felt like I became this man of the house because back in the 80s and 90s, you know, you'd go around to people's houses and there would be a man of the house. It's the dad, you know, and, and they're the ones who might be sitting there drinking a beer after work or. Um, you know, they're in their, their blue singlet and their stubbies, you know, their, their short footy shorts and stuff like that. And maybe they're having a smoke outside and there's this big persona of what a man looks like and, and the man of the house. And, 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 uh, and if the kids mucked up, like he would throw something at you or he'd yell abuse at you or whatever. Um, and he was kind of like this intimidating figure, but he was a protector. And so when I became this, I put it on myself to become this man of the house in, in, with mum and, and because, you know, mum hasn't, is deaf. And so like, you know, at the nighttime when her hearing aids aren't in, she couldn't hear anything like, you know, and she'd go to sleep. And so particularly nighttime is when my obsessive compulsive disorder went to the next level and to something that was quite distressing. And so I, because I was this man of the house protecting my mum, protecting my little brother as well, who was a couple of years younger than me, I spent three, you know, two, three, four hours a night checking that the house was locked because I developed this obsessive thought that if the if a window was open or a door was unlocked or something, someone's going to come into the house, steal our stuff, Could they could kidnap us because we we're pretty small kids. They could hurt us. They could murder us. They could do all of those things. Um, and then addition to that, I felt like 
if there was an appliance on in the house, an iron, the stove, the door of the fridge was open or something, it was going to also catch on fire and burn us all alive, essentially. So these are two obsessive thoughts that came into my mind as a 13-year-old who felt like he needed to be a protector of the household and the man of the house. And so what I would do is I, when everyone was in bed, I would try to go to bed myself, but then I'd go, no, I've got to go check everything. And so I would go systematically throughout the house, every window door, even the curtains had to be pulled to a certain, you know, so that nobody could see in and stuff like that. I had to make it as difficult as possible for these make-believe people to come into the house. And so I would check, check, check doors, windows. Um, I'd even go outside checking gates in the middle of winters, freezing cold or pouring down with rain. I'd be out there checking gates in the middle of the night, just 13 year old. And I did this all in silence. Again, it was all in the dark. Nobody knew I was doing it. Mum went to bed. She didn't know I was doing it. My brother was in sleep. He didn't know I was doing it. You know, I, I'd do the check once and then I'd go back to bed and my brain would say, Simon, did you really check that window or did you really check that door? And I would, and it would tell me that I didn't, or that it would tell me that it, when I walked away, the the most minuscule wave of air that came from outside might have unlocked the door or or the window, or the fact that I went and checked the door might have unlocked it in the process. And so I would be constantly up and out of bed doing this checking, and and then also with the stove and the iron, making sure that they weren't touching something but they were unplugged from the wall because they, they could catch on fire and all this type of stuff. And it got to a point where after doing this for so for so long and, and a number of years, every night without failure, like I, I was exhausted. I became exhausted and this is where depression started to come in. But again, we didn't talk about depression. It wasn't something that we knew how to talk about. So again, it was bottling it up. It was me trying to essentially outthink a, a disorder that is based purely on thinking, if that makes sense. Like I was trying to outthink something that is destined to think and make me think. Um, so that was happening as well. And then it manifested into the daytime as well. So I'd go to school with my school bag and and I'd be constantly checking my wallet and phone and keys were there. So I eventually got a phone, but at the start it was all wallet and keys. So I'd have that in the front pocket of my bag and then I'd, I'd walk 10 meters off, you know, out of the car or even in the car on the way there. Mum would be driving. I'd be checking my bag constantly. Have I got my wallet in there? Because that's got my address and my identity. And it, you know, when I got a job, eventually I had my bank card in there. And, and, and then now I've got 500 cards in there. I don't know what's in there. Um, and my keys. Cause if they got my wallet and they got my keys, then they've got, they know who I am, where I live and they can access the house. Just petrified of this happening for the same reasons as the locking of, of the house as well. And so I would check and then I'd lock, I'd close my bag, the zip on my bag, and then I'd put it back on my back or I'd put it on my lap or on the floor, wherever it is. And then my brain would say, Simon, are you sure you checked this part of it? Is, are you sure the keys are all on the key ring perfectly so they're not going to fall off and you're going to lose that key or, or in the process of checking, did your keys or wallet and then eventually phone? And then eventually work passed when I became an adult and started working. Did that magically fall out of your bag in the process of you checking? Or then in the process of you checking, have you now ripped a hole in the bottom of your bag so that's fallen out of your bag? So then I'm now checking for holes in my bag as well. And this is constantly all day, every day, um, you know, through school, high school, university, work, career. You know, I'm now 40. I still do this type of stuff. From when I was 12 or 13. And, and again, this is all bottling it. I bottled it all up because I didn't know how to talk about it. It felt really weird. It felt really stupid. And, and it's funny because when, when you talk about mental illness and, uh, and I think back to the humming thing, it, it often sounds so stupid when you talk about it or you write about it or you post about it on social media. But when you're living with it in your head, it is so real. It is like it's a hundred percent going to happen if you don't do this, this, and this, and particularly for OCD because you have to do the behaviours to alleviate the anxiety from the obsessive thoughts. And and I love sharing the, all these stories, these intricacies about OCD because when you think about OCD and when people talk about OCD, it's often it's quite a trivialised condition. 
So you're not sure if you've ever been in a workplace or, or at a barbecue and someone's like, oh, my OCD is killing me because this thing's out of place. Or my OCD is killing me because, and this was a classic one in the workplace, is because this PowerPoint presentation hasn't got a full stop at the end of this sentence. These aren't, this isn't OCD. This is just people like who are pedantic about things being neat and tidy. OCD is, 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 is a debilitating condition. There's, there's people that, you know, that there's a lot of jokes around washing your hands in OCD and there is an element of washing your hands in certain types of OCD. So if you have what's called contamination or germ OCD, you might wash your hands a lot because you have this fear that if you touch something, you've now got germs on your hand and you, you're either going to die or somebody else is going to die as a result of this germ getting passed around. It's not just because you like clean hands. It's actually because you have a fear, this overwhelming fear that something bad is going to happen. And to the point you'll be washing your hands where these people are bleeding, they've got cuts all over them, like their skin is just withered away because they wash their hands so much. It's like kind of like when when COVID happened, we're all using um, hand sanitizer and we're all getting cracked hands and all this type of stuff. It's that to the nth degree. And so, but it's not for everybody. It's like, I don't do that with my OCD. And I, and if you come to my house, it is a mess because I've got two kids under six, like who are six and three. I don't care about things being in place. Like that's not my version of OCD, but it's often trivializes to those two things. Or yeah, these PowerPoint presentations or these emails or whatever it is, you know, having a full stop missing or someone's overused capital capital letters or something like that. And so I love sharing this this, this OCD because it's so much more. You know, there's there's germ OCD, there's harm OCD. There's people that think about that if they hold a knife, they're accidentally going to stab someone. They don't want to, but the obsessive thought is that they can't alleviate is I'm going to stab someone if I hold this knife. So what they do is they, they might avoid knives or they like lock knives away they don't have any intention to hurt anybody with a knife, but they do this, you know. There's, there's others where, like, you know, there's ones around religion. There's ones around ethical, eth- your own personal ethics. There's ones around identity and, and there's even ones around pedophilia. And, and I say the word pedophilia because I, I didn't even know this one existed, but I, I was talking to somebody else who, who's trained in OCD therapy. And they were, they were sharing this thing, and and, I, and it made me think of a lot of parents actually. And there's this concept around: Am I a pedophile because I take my child to a public toilet? And it's the perception around what other people think of a grown man, like for, say for example me taking my son to a public toilet. And most parents would go, "Yeah, that's just a parent doing their parental duty." But someone living with OCD, particularly pedophilia OCD, might think everyone thinks I'm a pedophile. So then what they do, they, they avoid taking the child to the toilet, you know, and this is how debilitating it can be. There's people that lock themselves in their rooms for four or five years because they're, they're trying to avoid all the things, the triggers and then the, the responses that they have to do to alleviate. And so, so yeah, that's, that's when I went through this during, particularly from my teenage years, and this lasts until 28 years old before I finally got help. It was me trying to outthink it, trying to, figure out a way that if I think about it and think about it, try to rationalize it in my head, it would go away. I'd solve the issue. I'd so, I, would, I would solve my problems. But in reality, what it did is it just fueled it more. I never got it out of my head. And, it, and, and then it, so I turned to alcohol to bowl it up even further because alcohol would, would help me slow my brain down because an OCD mind, it just races so quickly. Like if you feel like you're, thinking a thousand thoughts every second and all at once and you're trying to solve 10 problems at once at the same time. And then it becomes more complex when you become an adult and then you've got adult things you've got to deal with, mortgages, work, social lives, kids, all this type of stuff. And and it becomes more and more challenging as you go unless you can get help because there is help available. But it took me a long time to, to start to realize that. And and the complicating thing about OCD, and I think this kind of matches what I experience, is that they call it a silent condition because it takes on average someone around 15 years from first symptom to first treat. And now mine was 20-odd years. And in fact, mine, I didn't actually get treatment for OCD until I was in my mid-30s, so it was probably even longer because my initial treatment was focusing on depression and anxiety, not the OCD. Um, which is probably the more prevalent issue 
that I've had to deal with since I was eight years old. And so, yeah, it, it, it got to a, it was a long time of bowling it up, trying to outthink of it, outthink it, trying to be the man of the house. And now I'm a man of the house now with my family. But it's probably not until the last four or five years when I started studying social work and then started doing exposure response prevention for my OCD and I found mindfulness that I started to let all these guards down and take off all these masks and start to realise, yeah, what my mate told me when I was 10 years old actually makes a lot of sense and I wished I'd, I wished I'd just did something with that at 10 years old, not at 28 and then not at 38 as well because, you know, it's taken mental illness for me to to really understand who I am, taking mental illness for me to actually take the mask off and show my authentic self as well. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kitsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kitsukiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. That is so interesting, Simon. Um, what what a fascinating yet obviously a long and frustrating journey that you've had. Um, I've got a couple of questions. One is, did anybody notice, like when you're at school, did they notice you doing this and what did people say? Nobody noticed ever. Okay. And it probably came up a little bit. When I was, so when I got my license and I got my first car and got my P's and stuff like that, what I would do is it, it turned into something with the car as well. So there was a few things with the car. One of them was around this fear of the car rolling down a hill and killing everybody in its path. Um, never happened. Another one was around is the, is the internal lights on? Are they going to flatten the battery? Cause then it gets stuck in the middle of nowhere. And this is in a time when pay phones were the thing that we used to communicate <laughs> so having to find a pay phone and and all that type of stuff but being stuck in the middle of nowhere was was scary for me um so all these things and so i'd be constantly checking the car as well as so it turned into a car thing and what i would do is i could walk away from my car up to 20 minutes or so and then have to walk back to check the car or you know i'd go into work start a shift and have to run out the door to check car. And it, and it probably, when I first started dating, some of my girlfriends might have gone, why are you checking the car so much? And that's probably where it first come up. But no, I just like, oh, I'm like, I don't know. I just, I just needed to check the car and I kind of just bobbed off. But that was the extent of, I think, anybody ever noticing. But if they did notice, nobody ever talked to me about it. They probably, they did notice the drinking because I would drink a lot. And there was two aspects of it. One was to calm the, the mind down, which I wouldn't say that I was. I, you know, I might say I'm stressed today, I'm going to have a few beers. But another one was also to socialise because as I got older, I became more and more introverted and I just needed alcohol as a way to socialise. But then I wouldn't know when to stop because I liked the, I liked the feeling of the slower mindset, the, it, this clarity that came 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 over me suddenly but then also the, this superpower to, to socialise. And then I'd become quite extroverted, almost like my authentic self before I was eight. Because mum used to say I was quite a happy-go-lucky kid. I'd be really like free spirit. And so this would come out, come out of me when I'd drink, but I'd often drink too much. And then I would then spend the next few days in another obsessive, compulsive act of, of um, cyclical thought processes, which, which turned into distorted reality. So I'd, and this particularly happened around work events. When you know, as I became an adult, go to work function on a Friday night, have a few drinks, everything was fine. But the Saturday morning, I'd wake up, and for the next three to four days, I would obsessively think over the events 
because my mind would tell me, Simon, you said something that you shouldn't have said, you did something you shouldn't have done, um, you've made a fool of yourself, you're going to be in trouble from your manager or the director or whoever. This never happened in any cases, but my mind would be tricking me. So I try to think back on the events constantly to a point where I lost track of reality. So I'd actually lose the memory of the actual, you know, dinner or work function or whatever. And it would just become a blur. I wouldn't know what the truth is or what my brain was trying to say. And so that became quite distressing. And, and, and so maybe future relationships might have identified in that. Like, Simon, why are you keep obsessing over this night? Why are you asking me all these questions about what happened? And it's me checking constantly. It's, this is a common theme of OCD is checking, 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 whether it's the house, whether it's your voice, whether it's your thoughts, whether it's the car, whatever it is for you, it is, it's quite a complex thing once you're living in it, but often you just sit there living in it inside your head, trying to outthink it. And, you know, the escapes are substance abuse, drinking. You know, for some people, it might be aggressive behavior. You know, for some people, it's suicide. Were you consciously aware at the time that you were, you, you were checking, 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 checking? Were you aware of that and that others might notice? Like, were you trying to do it privately and secretly? Yeah, definitely as, as like the humming thing as quietly as, a, as possible. I almost, I often refer to it as like internalized humming. It's like when you, you, you make a humming sound to yourself, but you kind of do it like you close your nostrils in a certain way and you do it inside your head. Um, the, the checking of my bag stuff, I'm surprised nobody ever saw me do that because it's pretty overt. <laughs> um, people see when I was a, in my professional career as a public servant for 15 years, and I'd have to go to a wait or work function or hit the road with a work colleague. They'd be like, Simon, stop checking. You've already checked your bag about six times before you've even left the desk. Um, and even in the car, but they like, but no one ever questioned it. They just, I'm just like, I'm just checking. Yeah. Yeah. Just checking it. It's just a little quirk that I've got. Um, not realizing it was obsessive compulsive disorder until it was diagnosed. Um, but yeah, th- it was only a few th- situations where people noticed, but also. Uh, I wore the mask very well. Like it, 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 our mental illness is a mask that we wear and we often hide it and it's hidden away. And, and I think we, we often hide it away because we feel shame and uh, associated with it. But also for a lot of guys, it's, it's like, um, am I less of a man because I'm trying to deal with this at the same time? Um, because I'm not perfect. Maybe like there's this, you know, idea that we have to be perfect men and masculine men and, and, and so forth. But, when you're when you're dealing with mental illness, you often feel broken and you feel less masculine and less feminine as well. I'm, I'm sure for for females as well, and and so we, but it's a constant internal battle, an internal dialogue with yourself, and we are our we are we are our own harshest critics as well. So for me to to mask a lot of this, I turn to perfectionism, and so particularly OCD, everything had to be just right. And this is from checking the doors around the house to checking my bag was zipped, you know, just right to checking the car handbrake was on. Um, absolutely everything would have to be just right, even to the point when I started my professional career and sending emails. An email for me would have to be just right in terms of tone, in terms of information, in terms of recipients as well. So it could take me triple the amount of time to write an email that the person next to me would write and then what i'd have to do is i'd press send and i'd check again i'd check the sent box that a it went b that it didn't magically change in its context or content or to its recipients because i had this overwhelming fear that it was going to do that and then and so i set this huge bar of perfectionism really high for myself and it it came to a point in 2020 when i burnt out that I could no longer hit that perfectionist bar. And it's from there that I was like, okay, something has to change. Yeah, I've been diagnosed. I know I'm diagnosed, but I need more help for this than me trying to outthink it, me trying to drink too much, me jumping in and out of therapy. I actually need to find something tailored for this because I can't keep hitting that bar. And so from 2020, it's been a almost like the opposite of me being more overt with it, me telling people that what's going on as a way to show them that I'm not, you know, normal in a, in a way. Like I have this thing that I'm trying to deal with 
And for a long time, I've hidden it from everyone. I'm sick of hiding it from everyone as well. Now I understand what your comment at the beginning when you said you find it quite therapeutic to share the story. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> yes. And I'm a sharer as well. I'm a sharing is caring. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I, one of the questions I had, and you, you almost touched on it, or the answer then was how much time has this cost you in everyday mm. life? Like, checking the bag during the work day or at school and university. You know, I was just thinking, wow, how much time have you spent with all of the OCD activities? Yeah, well, it's it's since probably eight years old up until, um, you know, almost 40, so all day, every day for that period of time. Um, you know, there's 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 good periods where I'm, I'm not doing it so much and, and maybe – OCD takes a backseat and depression might come in or anxiety comes in or there's there's days when none of that's an issue. Um, but for the most part, it's an everyday thing. Um, it's a little bit less full on these days as I'm older. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm tired because I've got two kids or <laughs> whatever um, and I'm and my own business now. But, yeah, like for a long time, it was it's all-consuming. It's all I thought about and it's all I lived and and. It was hard. It was. It was really hard to a point where there was moments where I wanted to just die and just got, I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, but I'm glad I, you know, I pushed through that and, and started sharing this story. And because it, it is therapeutic, it's a way I'm a big believer that the more you can share, the more, you know, it, it halves problems. It, it causes other people to come to the light and help you through that because, you know, I try to bottle it up i tried to put it on my own shoulders and try to outthink it and where did that get me you know, undiagnosed for two for two decades you know um which isn't great and i don't want other guys to go through the same so that's why i share it as well to hope and inspire guys to go oh yes i'm doing something similar to simon or i'm feeling it might not be even the same condition but it might be just a mental health issue and I've been drinking too much or taking drugs or, or whatever trying to deal with it myself but simon is saying that there is help out there so maybe i can go get the help too can you take me to the the time when you i guess realized you needed to get diagnosed what was the trigger or the, the situation that led you to that yeah so it was around 2012 so it was like 20 28 or so um probably the year before that my what my now wife had kind of started prompting me saying simon you're drinking is it's all around the drinking pretty much like you're drinking too much you're not your usual self grumpy all the time you know i can see you doing all these checking things it was quite obvious to her um because we lived with each other i think you need to get help and for the first year of hearing that i deflected it every single time like no maybe you need to go get help i'm okay maybe if you're having trouble with this maybe you need to go see someone um or I'd get to a point where I'd go, oh, I'm just going to not drink for a couple of weeks and I'm going to do some more runs around the block and, and try to exercise my way to, to better health. And in some cases that helped and in most cases it didn't. I just felt back into old old habits. But then it probably got to a year after her, I don't want to use the word nagging, but, but you know, telling me a few times that you need to get some help, that I, it started to sink in and I, I felt tired and I felt like, yep, starting to develop that inner light bulb moment where okay maybe this is the time that i i need to get help and so i yeah i booked in i think no she actually said that if you don't get help then maybe you need to get out as well so that that came to mind as well and so i thought no nah, she said it before but this time she was pretty serious about it and i'm like okay i don't want this to happen i need to get help and so I went to the doctors and I remember it was one of the hardest things I ever did was to, and I remember choking on the words as they came out. I said, I think I've got a mental health issue. And so I did a few, few questionnaires and then got a uh, mental health care plan to go see a psychologist and started medications. I've never been on medications before. Um, and from there, um, that's when the diagnosis of depression came. So I knew I was depressed, um, anxiety to a lesser degree, but then the psychologist said, oh, Simon, you also meet the criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. And I'm like, what is that? I'd never even heard of that before. Um, and that's started a bit of a process of discover discovery. And, and, but then it also, and that discovery was 10 years of different therapy. So I've seen psychologists, psychiatrists, 
counsellors. Um, I've seen social workers as well, lots of different types. Um, a lot of it was cognitive behavioural therapy, which I didn't really buy into because it felt like homework for me. Um, but that was, tr- I think, channeling more the depression, anxiety, but I really needed more help with the OCD, which cognitive behavioural therapy is helpful for OCD, but it's not the best thing for OCD. Um, and so it was a lot of trial and error and me dropping in and out of therapy as well. Um, but it was, it was that moment, yeah, where I think that that light bulb moment where I'm started to go, okay, yep, something needs to change. And I often find like these days I'm a, I'm a therapist myself and the guys that come into therapy with that light bulb moment, they're the ones that really get the benefit because they're the ones who are willing to change. Um, as opposed to if, if I got dragged there kicking and screaming, I, I wouldn't have taken anything in and it would have been a more deflection and more alcohol abuse and, and so forth um, over the next few years, yeah. Understandable. And when did you tackle the alcohol abuse? It's It's been an ongoing thing. Like it's really mm-hmm. hard. I find Australian culture is really hard for, for alcohol use. Like we start, because we can start drinking at 18, we generally start drinking at 15 or 16 and, and particularly in my social circles, it was a big thing. And, and, you know, I remember seeing like you hear, everyone's heard of the David Boone thing of, you know, being on that flight over to the UK and smashing so many beers. And this becomes idolized in, in young blokes culture. Like, Oh, how much can we drink? How can we wreck ourselves? And so from an early age, it's been ingrained in my, in my life. And, and because it came with that, that, quietening of the mind as well for me and the socialization you know i guess input as well like it i just felt like it was a superpower that i had so i'd drink and come out of my shell but also get that relief and so the you know for the since i was 15 until now like it's still an issue that i struggle with and there's periods where i can go off the alcohol and i think as i get older and i'm a, I'm a dad I'm, I'm more mindful of it now because i don't want my kids to see me drinking all the time and so like Last year, I had three months without drinking at all, and it was really great. And it um, actually coincided with AFL Grand Final Day for me, which is that usually every year I'll just get wasted because it's like a, the biggest day of my year. It's, I love my footy. Um, like so many guys would have a, a day like that, whether it's Bathurst, whether it's the Ashes, whether it's the Boxing Day Test or whatever it is, if you love sport. And for me, it was AFL Grand Final Day. So I actually didn't drink in the last AFL Grand Final Day, which wasn't too bad because it was an absolutely terrible game. And it was over in the first 10 minutes. So we, we took the kids down to the swimming pool at the hotel that we were at, and it was actually a really good day. But it's been an on and off problem for me, and I still admit to that. And, and you know, even more recently, I've, I've been a bit stressed, and but I think I'm more mindful now of why I'm drinking so much. So if I'm drinking a lot, it's because... Maybe I'm stressed, so then I have to look at the other things in my life to go, okay, why am I stressed? And then tackling those things. And then what I find from there, having the knowledge now, both from a social work perspective and also my lived experience as well, and I guess also the mindset that I'm in these days compared to 5, 10, 20 years ago, um, is I can cut back a lot quicker than I used to. It used to just be me just drinking a carton of beer every weekend or whatever and deflecting any issues to anybody else and not taking responsibility. So these days it's more of a mindset thing, um, but it's still an issue. And I, I admit that like it's something that I'm, I work on and I probably will work on for a while. Yeah. You know, the, the healing journey is not a straight line, is it? Mm, absolutely. It's, 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 I often refer to it as like a, a roller coaster and often we, we could be going up and, and feeling great. And then there's other times where we're hurtling down to earth feeling like we're about to face plant into the ground. There's other times when we're hanging over the edge, spewing our guts up, um, and then we get off, and then we feel great, and then all of a sudden we're back on it, and off we go again. So, yeah, it's, it is a it is a intertwined, difficult process that is different for everybody as well. I often hear mm-hmm. people say, you know, how long is this going to last? I'm like, well, for me, it's been 30 years. For you, it could be three weeks. I don't know. Like, it's just however long it takes. Um just embrace the journey really is the more you can embrace it. I think the, the quicker you can get through it and the less turbulent it becomes as well. Um, how are you today? Like if you think, look back on the journey that you've been on, you've obviously gotten treatment, uh, you're working on things every day. You've obviously changed careers. How do you, how have you integrated the acceptance of having this mental health condition of OCD? into your life and, and how is it today? 
Yeah, it it took burnout to get to that point. <laughs> so I've got a lot of mental health issues that I that influenced me over time. But 2020, you know, just to give a quick overview, I was working full time in my 15 year career, um, so nine to five job. I was studying part time master's degree in social work because I really wanted to change careers as well. I just had I'd had enough of the the old career. Um, two kids under I think three or four. I'm not great with with how old they are. I should I should know better as a dad. Um, yeah. My mental health journey, family life, and COVID. So then COVID came along, and and we had lockdowns and trying to navigate all that stuff. And and I burnt out in 2020, and it took I took had to take four months off of work because I was physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually just spent, and I was like a potato on the couch. And I, even that hurt. Like I actually had back pain that was caused by mental illness. And, and the burnout actually created this back pain that nobody could correctly diagnose. And then once I actually got better, the back pain disappeared miraculously. And so during that time, I, I, I really felt the need to take off my mental health mask, my mental illness mask, because before that, only therapists and my wife knew about it. Nobody else knew about it. And so what I did was um, part of my return to work process was going to work and sharing burnout because burnout was actually a prevalent thing in my workplace. And just sharing what it is and what it felt like for me through my recovery process, which included medication, included going to see a social worker, uh, a mental health social worker, um, and also discovering mindfulness, which is what I'm all about now as a mindful men. And, and so what that all looked like for me. And at the same time, I used that to say, I also live with OCD, depression, anxiety, and I'm a man talking about mental health. And what this did, because this was in a, a uniquely feminine workplace, like the public service is, is majority is, is, is women working in, in the, in the public service. So for a man to be up there spilling his guts about mental illness, it was actually quite enlivening for the people that I shared that story with. So, you know, I, I, I put a PowerPoint presentation together. I show, I, I went through the symptoms and then my recovery process. And then from there, I also started social media. I started engaging in social media to say, hey, men can cry, men can talk about emotions, men can have issues that they need to talk about and they should talk about it. And so I started started with an Instagram page, me sharing daily affirmations. And then from there, I started putting my face out there and sharing it. And people were like, Simon, I didn't realize you live with this. I'm like, well, because I never told anybody and nobody ever asked, really. And And so... You know, I bottled it up. I, I'm, I wore that mask really well. And so from there, I started to embrace more mindfulness-based practice. So I'd never really got into mindfulness before. I was introduced to it by a social worker. And then again, a couple of years later, by a psychologist who was really Zen-like psychologist. He wasn't like the, this is CBT and we're going to do CBT. He was like, no, let's throw that out. And it's become like monks in the therapy room, which I just love because it was different. It was connecting with a different aspect of me internally that I never engaged with. So that spiritual side of me. And I found it just really useful for grounding ourselves in the moment, being present because my mind as an OCD would be either in the past or in the future would never be where my feet are. And so I was just started embracing all these concepts. And then as my social work degree progressed and I started doing my, my um, practice placements, I was, I was in a private counseling practice. And I had my own caseload of, of guys. I think it was about 10 guys I was working with. And we just practiced mindfulness. We practiced acceptance and commitment therapy. And what I loved about that was a couple of things. One, it was embracing our values and identifying our values and what makes us tick as guys. And that's where I could bring in some of the, that debunking the myths of masculinity around what it means to be man and masculine and, and a dad and, and a husband and a partner and all this type of stuff. But it also means I could start tackling this thing called perfectionism. And this is where I brought in, I found this concept, and I think it's, it's, it's really close to Kintsugi heroes of Wabi Sabi. So it's embracing the beauty and imperfection because my life has been perfectionism to the nth degree to manage the OCDs. Everything has to be just right. So what my psychologist would say is, Simon, you have to learn to fail and learn to understand what failure feels like and embrace the failure. And so I started doing things like that I would normally not do. So my website, for example, I started, there's mistakes on my website and people said, Simon, there's a mistake here because usually my things are pristine. I'm like, no, I'm leaving it there. This is me embracing imperfection. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little failure, but it's a failure for me. 
Um, other things like, you know, yeah, there's, you know, in my daily life, just embracing imperfections as well, trying not to check so many times or trying to change the way I checked. And, and so by embracing these things and through also the social media, I started to become more comfortable with who I was. But then the value of social media, and a lot of people hate social media for lots of very you know, valid reasons, was I found an OCD community that I never knew existed. So I started liking and following people that had OCD, and they introduced me, and this is all over the world, and they introduced me to this thing called exposure response prevention, or ERP, which is the gold standard for OCD treatment. I'd never heard about it. Even though I was diagnosed with OCD, nobody had ever spoken to me about it. So I started Googling it, and actually there's not many therapists that do ERP therapy, which comes under cognitive behavioral therapy. But what cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy does is that it focuses on your thoughts and, and, and just focuses there. But ERP focuses on your behavior, so the checking behaviors or the humming or the, the checking the door, checking the locks. It's not so much on the thought because the thought will always be there. It's about your response to the thought. And I found one up here on the sunny coast, a, a therapist that did, did that. And I got, I started working through that. And from there, I found this way to manage the OCD and, and get better. And then, you know, a couple of years down the track, I got to a point where I could start my own therapy practice, leave my old career behind and just put all this mess of life and learned experience through both my lived, you know, eight to 28. 28 to you know 38 but also the therapy that i've been in and the social work and put it in one big pot and this is mindful men now <laughs> so it's a bit it sounds very messy but there's a lot of method method in the madness and and what i love about it now is that i now have a dedicated mental health and and disability therapy service for men because there's not many for men around and the idea about it is that you Google in there therapy for, for women, there's heaps of those. Therapy for mums, there's heaps of those. Therapy for kids, there's heaps of those. The therapy you find for men is usually because they've been in domestic violence situations or they've been incarcerated or they have substance abuse. They're, they're specific to those issues. But I just, I, my therapy practice is more for just guys who just want to talk and they want to debunk some of these myths of masculinity. And I can say I've lived it. I've walked in your shoes. Yes, our shoes might be different. They might fit differently. There might be some different sizes and, and different paths that we walked on. But if you're telling me that you feel like crap, I, I know what that feels like. And in fact, just because I'm a therapist, it doesn't mean I don't go to see therapists myself because I still live with it today. Like it's not something that I've healed from, but it's something that I've now turned from my pain into my fuel for my passion. And so that's where I am now is, is, is doing this as a social worker and, leaving that old career behind that wasn't fulfilling me and living a life that's more authentic from a mindfulness-based approach and without that mask, that mask is off now and so I'm very active in the social media and podcasts and everything about sharing the story because this is the face of mental illness. It's just an everyday bloke that you could be sitting next to on the bus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I absolutely love it, Simon. I love how you've embraced you. And you're bringing yourself to the world and you're authentic, you're vulnerable, you're open, and that is the path to healing, but it's also the path to connection mm. and helping others to heal and for us to yeah. I think just part of it also is, and I, and I get this from all the other conversations I have with the Kazuki heroes, is just reconnecting as human beings. Mm. And it, part yeah. of being human is actually connecting with others and reaching out, giving them a hand, understanding their pain, learning from them. That that's that's all part of this journey of being human. And I love how you are you, you're fully embracing that. And you, you know you're you're not no one's perfect. There's no such thing as perfection. And um just accepting the humanness of us all is I think the goal and I love the, the approach you're taking and congratulations on, you know, having your own business to support mm. them in their journeys and their path because it's really needed. Um, yeah, I just want to congratulate you. It's just really heartwarming and, and unique what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I often hear like, you know, my mental illness or my disability, because I was working in the disability space, like my disability doesn't define me, but I think in a way, particularly for me, it does define me and it helps me define myself and see myself. When I look in the mirror, this is me. Like, and I can see it as fuel now. Like for a long time, it was pain. 
and even today, like it's still painful sometimes. Like there's weeks where I struggle. Be, like you know, I had a client the other day said, "Some what you know? Do you do you know what it feels like to feel depressed?" I'm like, "Yeah." Like last week, I was feeling depressed about this, and I went and saw my psychologist. Or I had a, I've got a psychiatrist appointment coming up, and I'm going to talk to him about that. And just that that connection there, they can go, "Oh, oh yeah." Like you're 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 helping me, but you've done it. Like it just builds that connection, and it's such an important thing in the therapy space is is having that connection with the therapist as well. And and that's what I love about the lived experience of mental illness and disability as well is that it just gives you so much that books can't give you. And, you know, and I, and I wear it as fuel. Like other, I get other people, they don't want it to define them. They see themselves as being bigger than that. But for me, it's my fuel. And and that's what, yeah, it just drives me every day. bounces me out of bed now. I've taken off that mask and bounced out of bed. And I do podcasts at 5 a.m. in the morning sometimes to talk about the story, whereas I would never have done that on my old career because it didn't have the same effect. And so me embracing it, it just gives me this this drive and, and I just hope other guys can come along for the ride as well. I hope they do too. Um, Simon, as we come into a close, I have a, I've got a final question for you. If there is someone out there who's listening to your story and they have can identify with any part of your story that you've shared, is there something you'd like to say to them and leave them with? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I think you need to find that light bulb moment where you're ready to talk about it. And it doesn't have to be with a therapist. You don't have to go into medications and all that. There's a lot of shame and stigma associated with all that. So to start with just recognizing in yourself that maybe change is time for a change whatever that change is maybe it's drinking too much maybe you're eating the wrong foods maybe you're spending too much time on tech maybe you're just feeling down and and out and all that type of stuff so once you recognize that then it's finding the right person to talk to whether it's your friend your partner um your doctor's really good thing your gp's really good because they're they're objective as opposed to subjective. They don't know like the intricacies of your everyday life, so they don't have any bias. Um, and if you can get a referral to a psychologist, counsellor, or whatever, social workers are fantastic. I, I always bang on about social workers because I am a social worker. Um, but, yeah, you don't have to go to a psychologist. There are other options out there. Um, or you can come see someone like me. You don't need referrals to see everybody as well. You don't Like I have private paying clients who want to stay out of the mental health system they just want to pay me for my time and just let me and talk. So there's different options around wherever you are in Australia and the world as well. Like if it, if it's some, you know, if this is going, this, see people across the world would listen to this. And so just find who works for you, who you can trust, who you can respect, and then just start a conversation and start where it's easy to start. For some people, it's, that's going to the deepest and darkest trauma. For other people, it's like, Oh, you're just feeling a bit down. Can we just talk and just start where it's easy. And, the more you talk and and the easier it becomes because that's what I've been practicing for the last 13 years is talking about things and it does get easier as you go. Now I just can't shut up about it. So, Brilliant advice to start. And that's, mm. that's the key thing and talk. Yeah. Because, and yeah. there are people willing to listen and like yourself and that's, mm. it's wonderful. There's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, people like yourself that out there no matter where you are in the world you listeners and it's uh you're not alone i think that's that's the key yep. thing that you're sharing as well right yeah absolutely mm. thank you so much for your time today simon thanks for sharing your story explaining everything it's been fascinating i have a new appreciation for ocd and and you know what <laughs> you've been through and what what it involves and i just want to thank you for bringing light to the subject yeah, no, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed having this chat. Again, it's been therapeutic. I feel really good now. And, and yeah, thanks so much for all the listeners listening in. I hope you've got something out of it. And, yeah, touch base if you need to. Wonderful. Thanks. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below and join us next week for our next Heroes story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken
Only when you're broken Only when you're broken 